Amen. We are in our series on Jesus Christ in the life of. And one of the things that we believe here at Epiphany Fellowship is that, yo, the, New, the Old Testament, the, the, the law, the prophets, and the writings all speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and so what we wanted to do, Pastor Deuce and I, we wanted to, that's cool, I just noticed that. That's dope. <laughs> um, yeah, so anyway, that's dope. And so the Lord, the Lord has been gracious to us in so many, many, many ways um, that we wanted to begin walking through different characters in the Bible and begin seeing and highlighting um, Christ in their lives because we talked about the fact that if you just go to the Old Testament and you just preach the story that was told without reading it Christianly, without doing what Jesus wants us to do is to read him back into it, then it becomes a moralistic story. And so one of the things that we don't want to do is tell you to train your flesh. Because w without Christ, just giving someone principles for life is merely motivational speaking that rile people who are fallen and powerless to do something that there is, there is a biblical impossibility for any of us to do, and that is to please God with our own works. And so what we're passionate about doing is zooming in on, not without faithfulness to that story, because there are some who would just go there and just make up stuff about Christ in a way that's just allegorizing what we would call or reading into the text or stretching the text. And so today, we're going to dive into a story of a person that really, as, I, as, we, were, as we were looking in and as we do our study, you will see that most of our stories, it'll say Jesus Christ in the life of this person, but really you see the beautiful oversight of God in redemptive history in the lives of people. And we talked about a few weeks ago the fact that God has been redeeming or buying back, doing his eternal work in the lives of people for centuries. And that work in Christ, has, it, it continues through us. And so one of, one of our forefathers in the faith we're going to do a study on is Noah. Noah, Noah. Um, usually the story of Noah in the children's ministry or, uh, or Sunday school classes usually stretch the story quite a bit and have things happening in the story that didn't actually happen in the story. Like one of those things that you'll hear people say is that Noah preached um, to people and beg them to join him in the ark. You won't see that in this text. Um, one of the, uh, you, you, I mean, you see all types of things where people, in, I mean, in good, in, in, I guess good faith in their, in their estimation, kind of inflate the story and really make the story only about the flood, only about Noah, and only about evil. But this story is so much more rich. We don't have time today to just work through Christ in the life of Noah. We're just going to pick out just a few things to kind of zoom in on and apply them by, by the Lord's grace. I'm going to dive into um, chapter 6. I'm going to start at verse 5. It says, the Lord saw the wickedness, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man in the earth, and it grieved him 
to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. As we talk about Christ in the life of Noah, one of the first things I want us to zoom in on and the fact of this story in Christ in the life of Noah is the fact that God confronts our sin. Number one, just real simple, God confronts our sin. It's shocking here if you're reading this from a narrative perspective. Because when you look at Genesis chapter 1 and you look at the God saw statements, it seems as if what God saw in Genesis chapter 1 that he created is very different than what he sees in Genesis chapter 6. It says in Genesis chapter 1, and God saw this and it was good. And God saw this and it was good. And God saw this and it was good. He, he, everything that God created, and he, he saw through, because God is the eternal artist and beauty comes from him. So artists aren't creative in their own landscape of their own artistry. God is the ultimate artist. And he stood back from creation and he looked at the picture that he painted and he kissed his spiritual fingers and said, voila, this is good. But then the fall happened. And corruption corroded everything. Man who was created in the image of God went from being Created in the image of God, it didn't end, but it became defaced and marred. Man's values became jacked up, man's, man's passions became jacked up, and man's will became jacked up, man's intellect became jacked up. And so there was a, a corrosion through our federal head, Adam, of all mankind in which sin would permeate each and every single generation of people that were on planet Earth. And because of the fall, you got Cain and Abel presenting sacrifices and Cain kills Abel out of jealousy. And then you see God judging Cain and making him a wanderer. And then you see uh, 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 Cain's lineage where Cain has a whole lineage of people. Then you see Adam and Eve, it says, and Adam knew his wife. And when it says Adam knew his wife, they had a son and Eve named him Seth. And then the Bible says, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord again. In other words, there was a godly seed and a godly remnant that came up after, uh, after Cain uh, and Abel's demise. But then right after that, you, you have Seth, who has a godly line of people. And even in the line of Seth, um, even as godly as Seth is, as much as he called upon the name of the Lord all of that was still not enough to stop the corrosion of sin that came across through his genealogy and through him being a representative to his seed. So everyone that was born, even from Seth, who was a godly seed, still had the corrosion of sin. Then we come to a man named Noah, and it gives his genealogy. Then in chapter 6, it begins to lay out 
all of the wickedness that was happening on the planet. And because our God is omniscient and he knows everything and there's nothing that happens under his sovereign imperial economy that eludes his grasp, that eludes his eyes, he can see every single thing and he has a, a response to every single thing that he sees and his response in this text was not the same response that he had to his creation in Genesis chapter 1 says God was grieved God was dealing with the fact that man's wickedness was getting more progressively wicked in other words man was getting so wicked the Bible says it says the Lord saw that man the wickedness of man was great in all the earth in the earth that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only on evil so in everyday activities of human beings, everything had an inclination of evil. When he looked at a woman, all he thought was evil. When a woman looked at a man, all it was about was evil. When they had children, it was about evil. When they were working, it was about evil. When they ate, it was about evil. Everything in their lives were permeated and, and corroded um, 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 with evil. And so we see this progressiveness of, of the fall through the banishment of, from Eden. Cain's kills Abel, the godly line of Seth, still not immune to sin. And then we see the ep epidemic. But the beautiful thing about this is we see how God feels about the sin. Because we see the, that man's thoughts and his intentions were passionate about things that God has no passion for. And so man was preoccupied with his own pursuits, with his own passions and his own desires. And I guarantee you, that this hasn't ended in our context. We see that people everywhere are passionate about their own pursuits. They're passionate about their, their destiny. They're passionate about wanting to be married. That's their passion without God. They, they want stuff without God. In other words, every, the, the corrosion of humanity didn't end with the flood. And we're going to talk about a, a unique thing that God puts in place when sin gets out of hand until full redemption takes place. So you see the wickedness of man is great. The every intention of his thoughts were evil. His heart was evil. And it was continually evil. It wasn't a time where man did good and didn't, and didn't do bad at a time. Oh, I just made a mistake. No, even their good was corroded with evil. Even, I, I like the way one, one, my, the chaplain at the seminary I went to said, he said, our best attempts at holiness are filled with ill motive. And so we see in that statement the depth of, the depth of corrosion of man and sin. And so we, that's where we get the idea here of what we call total depravity. Say total depravity. Total depravity, many define it as the inability of man to merit the grace of God on, with his own works. That, 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 that's true. But, 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 but that, that's not the full definition of what it means to be totally depraved. To, to be totally depraved means the, 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 the cancer of sin has permeated every single area of man. S totally sinful. There is, there is no platform of good because even our good is jacked up. So humans are referred to here, even their plans, things that they planned were evil. People had taken their God uh, capacities and used them to devise evil so see man didn't stop having good way i mean man didn't stop thinking 
Man didn't stop having passions and man didn't stop having uh, an execution of those passions. But at this point, the man's thoughts and his passions, his values, his passions and his actions were totally in bondage um, to sin. And so even, so man didn't stop having the ability for technological ingenuity. Man didn't stop having humanitarian passions for other human beings. Man had, has intellect, man has technology, man is able to build, but, but at the foundation and within the matrix of man's, man's thinking and man's way of doing things is the corrosion and depth of, of sinfulness and fallenness and separation from the living God. This is very important because we need to understand the depth of depravity that is in the matrix of our world. We must understand what sin is. In other words, many of us talk down sin as if it is not sinfulness as sinfulness is, but sin is sinful to the fullest extent of sinfulness. In other words, some people say, a mistake, I made a mistake, I messed up, oh man, oops, it was a oopsie, it was a boo-boo, no, sin. And we see here in this text how God feels about sin. And it's interesting. It's been a lot of debate about this, about this passage and how people debate it. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that because it's very important about your and my understanding of God. Before we get to know, we got to talk about God, fam. It says the thoughts of his heart develop jacked up values, passions, and action. So man is habitually preoccupied with personal pleasure. But then it goes and it says what God, how God dealt with that reality. It says in verse 6, it says, And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and grieved in his heart that he had created him. He's grieved in his heart. You know, most people look at this idea of the sorriness of God. There, there are two views on this idea. All, I mean, there are a bunch of them, but there are really two. I split them up. Um, two, two strong views, but I think there's a center one that helps balance out the two views. There's one view that, that's in theology called open theism. And open theism, like think God learns stuff. So basically, stuff takes God by surprise. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow, man, teaching me something. You know what I'm saying? And so open theism would look at this and say, like God was sorry and looking back on his creation of man as if when he created man, he didn't exist eternally during the time that man fell and all the way to the end. It's as if God is experiencing history um, in, a human, uh, in a human state. So, whoops, oh man, let me fix that. Dang, us gods, we, uh, uh, that God thing I got going on, we got to kind of work things out. Like, so, so this group of people think God learns and, and that even though he's all powerful, he still has to develop, he still has to spiritually grow. In some ways, um, and a lot of new church plants are buying into this philosophy of life. It says practical, practically open theism, practically open theism makes the case for a personal God who is able to be influenced through prayer, decisions of actions, and of people. Although unknowing, not knowing the future, God has predictive or precognition. <laughs> um, like, I don't know if y'all remember that movie. I can't remember the one that my man... Um, Tom Cruise was in, and they had the precogs who could see the future. Anticipate, he has anticipatory foreknowledge of the future through his intimate knowledge of each individual, 
As such, he is able to anticipate the future. Anticipate the future. Like, like, like he's a weather forecaster or a meteorologist or something like that. Said, yet remains fluid to, the resp- to respond and react to prayer and decisions made either contrary or advantageous to his plan. Um, open theism is based on God as the living God, supposedly. The five most fundamental attributes of this is living, personal, relational, good, and loving. See, this is important for you to understand because whenever... In talking about this idea as we're walking through this to set up the stage for Christ in the life of Noah, your understanding of who God is means everything. Because your understanding of God will either make you make good implications in relation to God or bad implications. If God is only loving and relational, then everything about him, that's the only way you want to relate to him as the loving God who's relational, who wants to sit beside you, eat some buttered popcorn, and talk about your problems. But then there's another side, which I will call hypertheism. Hypertheism. Not hyper-Calvinism, I'm talking about hypertheism that doesn't believe that God actually is intimately involved with his people's lives. So you have this side that over-involves God, in other words, makes, brings God down to human level in ways that don't include the incarnation, but beyond his, his, his attributes. And, and, and the, other side, the other side of the equation does something crazy. What they try to do is they try to make God so uninvolved, they, 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 they emphasize his sovereignty and his transcendence, while the other side uh, 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 focus on his eminence and, 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 and his and his love. And so what happens with that idea is you, when you read a text like this and you say, and God was sorry that he made man, the open theist would say, well, see, God sees that, like, I wouldn't call it a mistake, but he mysteriously was like feeling real bad to the point of suffering. So we would say that God doesn't suffer. We wouldn't say that God suffers. We say that in the incarnation he did. This is very important to our understanding of this passage. The other, other side would just go and kind of even abandon the text and believe in to philosophically just explain this. But when we deal with this, we got to deal with it head on. It's interesting that the word here means to experience emotional pain. To experience emotional pain. You know, to be honest, this is a very difficult thing to explain what was going on with God when he looked at what he wanted for man, seeing the depth of sinfulness of man and the progressive wickedness. In other words, man was getting better at wickedness. God looks down at man and there is a grief about him. There was, I, I don't know if I would call it sorry, because um, God d- doesn't apologize for anything because he doesn't make mistakes. Um, but, but the challenge is working through what in the world was the living God experiencing at this point when he was looking at the sinfulness of man and his, and his eternal desire for a relationship with humankind. And so we see these two. Where I stand is God is both what we would call impassable. That means God doesn't suffer, but God does have emotions. Some people say God doesn't have any emotions. 
he's just like a steel dude that's just kind of up there, just no, like, I don't know how you ex explain spiritual emotions. Like, I don't know, but, but we're using what we call human language to describe a divine reality. And so we got to be careful of when we see human language in the text that we take that human language and over cuddle up with a view of God that may not be a full understanding of who he is. And so we as Christians, um, although we love being intellectual, there are some places where we need to put the brakes on and where the Bible is silent. We need to be silent, but also, uh, also we need to speak where the Bible speaks. And it seems to say in this passage, in some mysterious way, without infringing on God's omniscience, omnipotence, without infringing on his holiness, that in some way, shape or form, sin grieved him. But this grieving over sin didn't end here. He still grieves over our sin. The Bible says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, right? In the latter part of Ephesians chapter 4. But you got to read verses 1 through that verse to see how you grieve the Holy Spirit. How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? The way we don't relate properly to one another. That boils down to what? Sin. So sin grieves the living God. Now in what way it grieves him, I'm not clear on and I'm not willing to theologically venture into those waters and start jacking up his character. All I know is the text said something here about, about God being grieved that he made human beings. Because we know that God never changes Malachi 3, 6 says, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should not, lead neither the son of man that he should repent. Some people translate this, God repented that he made man. In other words, that God changes his mind, that God had to repent. God had to do a 180 about his creating of man. I don't know if I'm willing to go there because the Bible says that God is not a man that he turns from sin towards himself. In other words, he, he's not repenting of anything. 1 Samuel 15, 29 says, And also the strength of Israel, that is God, will not lie or repent. Isaiah 46, 10 says, Declaring the end from the beginning... And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So we see here the absolute power of God and him not, uh, 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 not, not turning away from things. But there was something about this that pained him. There was something about the way man was wilding out was paining him. Then the Bible says, in light of the pain of human kind. I don't believe God has physical pain, but there was something that happened here that made him do this. It says in verse 7, so the Lord said, I will blot out man. We're going to return to that word blot, underline it. Out man who I'm created from the face of the land, man and animals, and creeping things and birds of the heaven for I am sorry that I have made him God is grieved 
this creation. But in verse 8 it says, but Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. Dope. God intervenes. We see here God's intervention over the issue of sin. And so what God is going to do is God is going to send a flood. Whenever you look throughout the biblical record, God does not let sinfulness get as sinful as sinfulness could be. In other words, God does not, uh, does not allow man to live out the full extent of his depravity. Because if man lived out the full extent of our depravity, we would not be preserved to be saved because we would fall upon ourselves and kill ourselves. But God, throughout history, you'll see it throughout the Bible that whenever man starts wilding out and exceeds, uh, uh, it continues to exceed and greatly wilds out, he intervenes. You see it with the Tower of Babel. When man is beginning to wild out and create unity against God, God intervenes and comes in the midst and stops man from advancing in the fullest level of his wickedness. You see with Sodom and Gomorrah, they were wilding out in Sodom and Gomorrah. You see God coming down to bring judgment so that the permeation of the culture of Sodom and Gomorrah, by them living out the full extent of their depravity, he wipes them out. You see Israel, when Israel starts wilding out, serving other gods, loving other gods, loving their way of thinking, their way of doing things. You see God in Isaiah prophesied through Isaiah that he's going to bring Assyria in. And he's going to stop them from their wickedness and take them for a time of discipline to bring them back. But then he judges the Assyrians for them wilding out. Then you see Judah and Jeremiah being taken to Babylon, then to Persia because of the wickedness of them. But then you see Babylon wilding out. When you see Babylon wilding out, God brings Persia. When you see Persia wilding out, God brings Greece. When you see Greece wilding out, God brings Rome. And then the fall of Rome. In other words, when, when everybody think that they're at the apex of getting their shine on with their sin, God has a unique way of coming in and bringing divine judgment. And all of these little judgments point to a larger judgment that we'll talk about later. And so the flood is one of those judgments where God acts as a restrainer. The Bible says in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2 that we know him who restrains. And when we talk about the one who restrains, in that context, it's talking about sin. It's talking about the fullness of God's wrath out on sin. Some people say where the restrainer is the church. Some people say the restrainer is the spirit. Some people say the restrainer is God. I say the restrainer is God through his people. And we'll see that right here when we get to my man, Noah. Then we go from God confronting man's sin to God cleansing our sin. To God cleansing our sin. Verse 7, you see, it says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I made man. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Interesting. Noah 
found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We know that favor doesn't come from God looking at human beings and seeing how cute and cuddly and how much we, 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 we smell like, like baby powder and Johnson's uh, baby soap. He's not like, oh, look at the little humans. Look at them. Coochie, coochie, coo. No, God doesn't look towards us, see anything about us, and wants to use us despite him. He has to come in despite us and do a work in order for us to be utilized in his hand. So you see, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I believe God calls Noah to find favor in his sight. It wasn't just anything in and of Noah himself. We see that in Hebrews, that Noah was a man of faith. So the favor that Noah has comes by faith alone in Christ alone, the promise of his coming. So we see that he found favor in the sight of the Lord. That, that terminology means that God looks favorably and he comes near to those who he finds favor with. He was a righteous man. We see that it's not by works of righteousness, but it's by faith and faith alone. He was blameless in his generation. We see in his blamelessness in his generation, doesn't mean he was perfect. He was the only one that was continuing, despite of sin, to face God and to walk with God. So he was blameless in his generation. Out of all the sons of Seth, Noah was the last one still calling upon the name of the Lord. There was none of his other brothers and sisters. When you look at the ark and what happened with the flood happened, you, you, you won't see anybody else, his brothers and sisters. These are his brothers and sisters, his alien them, his grandmama, all of them. And, 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 and you see here that, that, that God constricted um, his work to the family of Noah. So he was blameless in his generation. He was the last left who was having regular interaction with the living God. So he walked with God. Pastor Deuce talked about Enoch walking with God. In other words, he walked in close proximity to God. In other words, you see in this passage where God chooses a representative. You see, God, in all of his interventions, he always chooses a representative. And Noah typifies Jesus Christ as the one in which he calls out and he utilizes uniquely as a representative to continue uh, 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 to keep the people until after the flood is over. And we're going to explain that. Said God revealed his plan through the intervention of his rep, the flood, the flood, the flood. We see here in the flood that he tells Noah, he says in verse 13, he says, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end to all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them, humans. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make, your, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. And the length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it lower uh, with lower second and third decks. For behold, I will bring the flood waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything, everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. The same way in which God establishes 
a covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ. It says that Jesus Christ was slain before the foundations of the world. So the same way in which God set a covenant with Jesus, the same way he does that, the same way he does here with Noah, um, 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 to, to, for Noah to be a representative to preserve a remnant of people throughout God's intervention through his sovereign judgment. The flood represents God's, of course, intervention. And he always deals with sin. Here we see an interesting word. We'll see in verse uh, 6, 7, it'll say, I will blot out man. You will see in verse chapter 7, verse 23, and he blotted out everything that was on the face of the earth. When you look at that word blot and you go over to Psalm 51, verses 1 and 9, you see the same word being used for blotting out sin. You see it? You see a representative Noah. You see Noah getting in the ark, the flood coming, the flood coming and washing away the depravity of sin and humanity on the earth. But what's funny is the judgment of God is a two-sided sword. He, he judges using the flood, but he also cleanses using the flood. He judges using the flood, but he cleanses using the flood. The same way on the cross of Jesus Christ, where God judges unredeemed humanity, but he also cleanses humanity who's unredeemed to come to faith to him in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in the life of Noah, you see God uniquely using him as a representative and a preserver of godliness in his generation through, the, through, through pointing to the, to the eternal person and work of Christ. So you see, God doesn't just let sin run amok. These pictures and these types and this picture of redemption didn't end with my man Noah. And nor that Jesus wanted to end with his death on the cross. He wanted it to, the, the work of the cross to be applied uh, uniquely to every area of all of our lives. And one of the ways as we look at this idea of God judging on one hand and cleansing on one hand is the spirit still comes through us when, I mean comes when, when we're preaching the gospel to people and preaching the reality of God's impending judgment when we preach the cross the cross signifies judgment for some and grace for others it's judgment for those who reject it it's grace for those who embrace it the question is what side of the cross are you on and is the cleansing flood of the blood of Christ washing you of your sins And so that doesn't end. And so we see Noah being a beautiful depiction and picture of what it looks like when Christ gets to a life. He pictures and typifies that reality. So Noah is acting as a type of second Adam. <laughs> he acts as a type of the second, even though he's not the ultimate second Adam, because we're going to see that not only... Does God confront sin? Not only does God cleanse sin, but we're going to also see that God gives us a, a new creation, makes us a new creation. We'll see all of these beautiful pictures in here. So the, so the ultimate intervention was done by Jesus on the cross. On the cross, God pronounces judgment on sin just as in the flood. And you see Peter picking that idea up in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He picks up that idea. 
of using it that way. So Noah as a type of redeemer. So we know that Noah failed. We'll see Noah getting drunk later on. So as good of a representative and as good of a man that God used Noah to be, Noah was still insufficient in his life being able to save and redeem ours. But he was a pointer to someone greater. And he was pointing to our Lord Jesus Christ. Just as Noah got a chance through the gospel, I believe, through the gospel to be able, by the grace of God, to be able to give a new start. We're going to see that in a second, that he does both. But the flood points to that role, points to the role of Jesus as judge. Because 2 Timothy says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing, and by his kingdom. So we see Jesus as judge. But then we see him as cleanser of sin, Hebrews 9, 4. How much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanses, our con cleanses your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so during the course of this, we see, we see Noah being a, a type of Christ. In other words, a preserver. God puts his family... What's funny about in verse 18, it says, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, your sons, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons and your wives with you. It's interesting that God says that he's going to establish his covenant with Noah. Not until after the flood does he say he's going to establish a covenant with Noah's family. So Noah acted as a representative of Christ, carrying us, carrying us into taking our place on the cross and, and, and those who fall in line. Notice the people that got washed away, they were washed away, they're gone. But the people who got on the boat were saved. But it's not clear whether or not he, but the covenant was with Noah, not with his family. And what's beautiful is, is that we can't go fly on ours about how fly we are, how tricked out our stuff are, because the covenant of God is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's not until we deal with Christ that God makes a covenant with us. All these people got covenant partners, all that kind of stuff. There is no covenant that's a true covenant without Jesus as the sparker of the covenant. And so what's beautiful about this text is we don't just see Noah. Because if I looked at Noah's life, I'd be depressed. I'd be depressed. But Noah has to be a picture of something greater. Jesus says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you find eternal life, but they all speak of me. And so you see in these verses that it's not just talking about how fly Noah was in building the ark. If all we want to do is watch the History Channel and see uh, whether, whether it's frozen in ice and all of that kind of carrying on, and whether the flood was a universal flood, was it a world flood? No, it couldn't have been a world flood because archaeologists didn't find out whether or not it was a local flood or a general flood or a regional flood. Like, you missed the point if you just fuss about the nature and universality of the flood, even though we would believe that the flood was universal. However, you missed the point if you stay there. 
If you stay in the level of universality of the flood, you miss the point of what Noah's life was depicting redemptively and typified in relationship to the person of the work of Jesus Christ. I know these are not amen sermons. These are just ones to just remind you that it's not about you and me. He said, God created us a new last thing, and then I'll be out the way. I'll be out your way. <laughs> What's funny in this passage is you see so many depictions and pictures. I'm going to try to choose because there's so many. Okay, I'll just, I'll just end with that one. Yeah. So he goes in verse 16 of chapter 7. It says, and those that entered, male and female, over all flesh, went in as God had commanded, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. Check this out, y'all. This is crazy. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven was covered. Underline that word covered. Pointing, depicting the covering of sin through the flood, washing away wickedness. <laughs> and it says in verse 21, it says, all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, uh, beasts, all swarming creatures, the swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Verse 23. He blotted out every living thing. He blotted out. There it is. That was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Check this out. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days it says here the only people that were preserved and kept were those who were on the ark with noah but finally verse 1 of chapter 9 it says and god blessed noah and his sons and he said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Powerful. What you see now is you see the first commissioning of Adam and Eve being recommissioned through Noah. Where we see that humanity is given a new start. Humanity is given a new start. So you see that what, what was a new start to do? What was God's command? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The husband and wife were supposed, to under, the, were supposed to enjoy their union with one another in such a way that they had children and that they had a bunch of them, loads of them, and their children had children, and their children's children had children, and then their children's children's children had children, and then so forth and so on. And these people, as they grew up and became adults, they were to populate and go through different sections and places on the globe and 
develop cities and subdue forests and, and till the ground and develop it and, and, and populate the entire planet. But there's one thing that they were supposed to have with them, the idea and centrality of God in their lives and the fact that he made them and not them themselves and that they would carry the torch of his glory to every corner of the globe of the planet. And as, as cities got built, as families got developed, as people had babies at the center of every piece of that renewal of those cities at the at the center of those families was the glory of God in the life of God's people throughout the planet but there was a booby trap even within the washing away of these people during the flood because every single person that was with Noah still had in their DNA code sin so even as they spread that out the corrosion of sin still populated the entire earth. But what's beautiful about this is God always gives a new start. And what's, what's ultimate is that the ultimate new start comes through Jesus Christ. It doesn't come through anyone else in anything. It doesn't come with getting a new job. A new start doesn't come with getting a new crib. I know some of y'all are jobless right now and y'all can really use a new start. New start doesn't just come with school. All of these things are decent things to do. A, a, a new start doesn't just come with marriage. But the ultimate new start comes with God not judging your sin and God washing away your sin. God not judging your sin and God washing away your sin. That is the ultimate new start. And that, just, that doesn't just come when you get justified. It is the process continuously as we sin as Christ has covered our sin. He continues needing to cover our sin in order that our lives may be user friendly in the hands of the living God. That's why the Bible, just as they got this opportunity, now the world is populated with people now. So what do you do? That's why we have the Great Commission. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. That means although the world is populated with people, but they're not populated with God glorifiers, therefore there need to be local missionaries that go to every corner of the globe to people groups that are what we would call non-primitive or those who are technologically advanced to spread the reality of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in every point and point on the planet. And just as they got a temporal new creation this this new creation was temporal in Genesis chapter 9 it was a temporal it was a temporal solution but it pointed eternally the Bible says that if any man be in Christ he is a what new creation all things have passed away behold all things have become new and so maybe you're here today and you've heard the flood story a bunch of times and it just focused on the flood and destruction you were told in Sunday school that, 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 that you know what I'm saying, that, that, Noah, that Noah was begging people to get into, into, the, into the ark. I don't see a whole lot of begging. I see the commandment, what, what it was telling him. You, see the, you, you also hear stories of how they marched in. You don't see that in this text. Because many times we focus so much on the story, which the story is a great story, and we need to zoom in on this story, but we need to read it and look at it in light of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our prayer is, is that as we look at these characters, that we would see the beauty, the artistic design. God is a comprehensive artist. God was the first artist. He sculpted the landscape of the universe. He was the first artist. But he also beautifully uses this narrative artistry to introduce us to characters 
who we see good things about. But if we walk away and we tell you, be like Noah, that will be a short end of the stick on things because that's a limited sermon. But when we talk about, let's look at how Noah points to Jesus and as he, he's a shadow, but Jesus is the shadow caster, Hebrew says. That when we look at the shadow caster and we look at specific parts of Noah's life that points us to different aspects of the person and work of Christ, that's where we grow. That's where we develop. Without stretching the text, without allegorizing the text and making everything a little bitty symbol, but pointing to the beauty of the person and work of Christ. When we talk about in our core value of showing off the glory of Christ in every area of life through Christocentrism, we say that because there's a way in which the glory of Christ is shown off in every area of life. And it's shown off through Christ being the center, not first. You know here, we don't believe in putting God first or putting Jesus first. That's not a biblical concept. He's at the center. And when he's at the center, he permeates everything. If he's first, he's just on a list of things. Mark God off and then I do what I want to after that. And so our passion is to have him at center. So as we look at my man Noah, we see that God confronts sin. That God is not going to front. He, he's not a punk. He's not some soft dude up in a frame on a picture looking off with some, with some wind and some light behind him. Looking off um, with wind in his hair. He's not some punk dude. Like my man said, he's eternal God on the throne. He, he, God is a God that judges, that has beefs, puts contracts out on people's lives, destroys stuff because he's so flippantly holy and gorgeous and, 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 and untouchable and flagrant with all of his greatness and glory and beauty. And because of that, he can't stand the stench of sin and his holiness calls on his wrath to swing a knockout blow every time not sometimes every time but what's so beautiful about him is he know he'll tear us apart if he just operates in his wrath only and so his wrath has to be satisfied and so the floodwaters of the blood of Jesus must come and wipe away all of the things that grieve God. So God intervenes. He intervenes. God is a rescuer. As holy as he is, he's not just one thing in particular. He's a whole bunch of stuff that makes him God. <laughs> and because all of that makes him God, he has to operate in all of who he is. So he can't get rid of being judgmental and he can't get rid of wrath or holiness. It just has to be satisfied because if he, if he um, gives us forgiveness without satisfying his wrath and holiness, then he's an unjust God and he's a sinful God. But he sent Christ to satisfy his wrath so that he could be freed up in his nature uh, to interact with us through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says, yes... In Hebrews chapter 10, now 
Now, guess what? Now we have the ability to enter the holy place by what? The blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is now our red carpet into the presence of God. When you walk into the presence of God, it don't matter what kind of sneaks you have on. Whether you got on Stacy Adams or Tim's or whether you got on shell tops or flip flops. The question is, is are you walking into his presence by way of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? And what's beautiful about it is his blood. His blood causes his confrontation of sin to not just be judgment, but forgiveness because of intervention. And because of that intervention, he can give us a new beginning. And somebody's here today that needs a new beginning. A spiritual new beginning where you need to be born again. All of us were born the wrong way the first time. But we need to be born again. I know that language has caught um, some snags over the years. But we have to be born again. And so maybe you're here, you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of you said, I grew up in the church, but I realized after hearing the gospel that I liked being around church, I liked the music. I like the preaching, but, I, I, you know, people say, open up the doors of the church. I've heard that. Come forward and come to the altar. That's not the gospel. The gospel is the fact that we're sinners. God confronts sin. He has to, and he's provided Christ through the cross as the intervening measure to cause us to come from spiritual death to spiritual life and being in a relationship with him and him alone. That's the gospel. The, the, the gospel is that he died on the cross, and on the third day he rose up from the dead. That's the gospel. Now, come forward isn't the gospel. The doors of the church is not the gospel. Give the preacher your uh, hand and God your heart. That's not the gospel. The gospel is to believe in Christ and Christ alone. If you don't believe in us as elders, please believe in him. <laughs> so, Father, today we pray as we close out and look at.